the subject for the evening talk is the place of the heart. Certainly a very a common agreement in uh, spiritual life is the place of the heart in uh, circumstances of existence. And to some degree, one of the signals, in fact, of a secular uh, culture has been to replace the sig significance of the head and, in, and replace it uh, rather than acknowledge the full benefit and the full significance of living a heartful and heartfelt life. And part of the difficulty, if not the problem of that, is the various ways and means that our mind has become overfed, overburdened, overweighted with knowledge and information. And I think this has contributed rather significantly to making the mind in or practical terms, rather heavy with knowledge, heavy with information. And we are told again and again how important it is to accumulate, to gather more and more information at a greater and greater cost to us, to the point that we could say that we are destroying the world with our cleverness. And this impact of all of this upon us as human beings, and I think essentially rather uh, gentle beings, is such that the pressure of knowledge, the burden and the weight of it, as it's rammed home to us morning, noon and night, and starting very early childhood, and increasingly more so at a, uh, an increasingly earlier and earlier age upon uh, children, that the pressure of this does have a considerable impact and influence upon the heart. And thus the heart is under pressure. It's in a, often in a state of distress. And the distress of the heart, that means the feeling life, can and does often show itself as anxiety, as uh, upset, as feelings of uh, insecurity and uncertainty about time, about past, present and future. And one can't help but feel and sense that the weight of knowledge, the acquisition and the pressure upon us for knowledge and for further knowledge is having this unsatisfactory and in fact distinctly uncomfortable influence upon the heart. And so when the heart is ignored or neglected, in some cases is hardly of use, drying up, uh, so to speak, then much else is lost as well, because the heart is that vital and indispensable feature of those sensitivities within for the ethics of life. How can we care and love for others if we don't feel for them, if we don't see the, and sense our closeness to, to them? How can we show respect and uh, reverence 
for the world that we live in if in some way or other the heart isn't experienced as a daily experience an empathy and a genuine and authoritative interconnection with things. So the burden of, of knowledge, the, the weight of knowledge is having an increasingly distressing influence upon life, upon human existence. And to some degree we do have to examine with tremendous care and I don't care in fact what we are studying or what, or what we are learning or what we are reading or accumulating, we have to examine very carefully am I doing in whatever it is a grave disservice to myself and to the earth by putting myself under so much pressure that I am forced into constant, constant pursuit, acquisition and regurgitation of various forms of knowledge. And for some, that will mean uh, a discernment in life and that discernment of letting go, of sacrificing, of, of giving up so that one is genuinely committed to a way of being in the world in which one isn't putting undue pressure upon the brain, upon the mind in terms of knowledge so that we through the mind, so to speak, we can listen uh, deeply to the depth of our being and to the place and the significance life in life, of the, the feeling life, the heart life, and the way that that has to inform our actions, inform the activities of mind, inform the activities of speech and body. And there are kind of um, uh, outer manifestations of um, what I'm referring to here as uh, well as ones in our own um, um, private circumstances. And to give a, an illustration uh, and in various ways a, a commonly used uh, description of things is that in Europe in uh, the month of uh, June, I think it was, there was this uh, major uh, a meeting of the so-called uh, uh, industrialized nations, the, 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 the richest nations, I think there were seven or eight of them, which uh, Russia has uh, recently joined. And this meeting was being held in Naples, in uh, Italy. And those of you who know a little bit of uh, Italy and specifically of Naples will know and be familiar with the hardship and the poverty that exists in the suburbs of uh, Naples and all the consequences of people who are marginalized. So when the political leaders uh, went to Naples, they of course were put up in the most expensive uh, establishments there in these huge palaces and they were there to discuss among many factors um, the growing crisis in the Western world of unemployment, the uh, present economic uh, levels, um, the relationship of uh, the environment to people etc etc. But what I found was that it takes place every time of course 
particularly unsatisfactory and it represents um, and tells a whole story in itself that the city council of Naples that before the arrival of these political leaders engaged in a massive clean-up operation in the very centre of the city so that when these leaders arrived they saw an impeccably clean and tidy streets the buildings were washed, the streets were scrubbed um, the uh, road from the airport into the city was made to look clean and tidy and modern etc and these are the very people in fact going into an environment to speak about unemployment to speak about poverty, to speak about social, environmental justice, economic growth, etc. But not allowed to see it. Completely alienated from the very issue which they are there to discuss and talk about. And this scenario repeats itself again and again of providing a pristine, clean environment, a false, deceptive uh, picture the effect of all of this of course it contributes to a cerebral mental view of circumstances in which the heart doesn't get the opportunity and isn't in fact allowed to have contact with those that one is supposed to represent And this world, this situation, as I say, repeating itself in such degree it starts in the political world, it's in the corporate world and in many other uh, circles where, as it were, things are treated exclusively and purely on some kind of managerial level of life and that model, the secular model, becomes the measure, the criteria to deal with life. Why? because the heart doesn't have an opportunity for expression and in some cases it's being actively deprived of the opportunity to feel the condition of life. And it's a pity, it's a great pity, it's a great pity for all, it's a great pity for our uh, political leaders who live in a world of wheeling and, and dealing and all the egos that go along with that and it's a great pity for those who are provided, uh, um, prevented from the opportunity to participate fully in life. So as I say, I use that as one small illustration of an outer circumstance of, of life, but then equally we have to look with care too at our own feeling life. And much mention is made of this, of course, during the time and the day, days here. One of the uncanny and, uh, things about this is that where there's some difficulty in the emotional and feel, feeling life, fear we have spoken of, uh, anger, uh, rage, an anxiety, um, jealousy, envy, the difficult emotions of life which, which arise and which have many backgrounds to them, Naturally enough, the attention goes to those expressions of what one is feeling, sometimes arising with a considerable degree of uh, intensity, and to the point that one can be quite alarmed 
that one is sitting relatively quietly, relatively doing very, very uh, uh, little here, and then suddenly the emotional life, as it were, zooms into conscience, consciousness with a like a vengeance to, of reactivity over the smallest, incidental, unimportant, inconspicuous detail of life, <laughs> and ne nevertheless, the, the emotions it tr treat it with, with uh, uh, greater con concern than a world war or, or, <laughs> or something else. So, times in the reaction of the emotional life which takes place, it far, far out exceeds what the issue is. And the relationship again, the all-important thing of relationship to the, the circumstance, that the, rela the relationship can and frequently does matter far more than the circumstance. Far more than the circumstance. What has happened that sometimes we're completely cut off from feeling life, from emotional life, dry, cold, detached, um, um, managerial, and all the ways that that might uh, show itself, a very constructed kind of mind. And in the gap, in the isolation from the depth of the feeling and the heart uh, life, it can, as it were, <coughs> gain a momentum and that momentum, as such, a small thing, as I said, can trigger it, and out of it comes fury. So what, what has happened in that? And it might just take a word, a, a, a gesture, uh, a, a glance, a, a small remark, um, an inconvenience or whatever, to unleash, out of the emotional feeling life, a reaction multiple times in excess of circumstance. Doesn't that show, doesn't that indicate, doesn't that tell us somewhere in the relationship to heart and feeling life that there has to be some kind of gap for that kind of reaction or rage or thrust of jealousy or revenge or madness or whatever it is to come through somewhere Prior to that, there was a gap. And then that, that gap got filled with the reactivity. Similarly, at periods of times too, with regard to uh, when energy is low, when tiredness is present in consciousness, when uh, there isn't too much vitality, vitality with, our, with ourselves, we often don't recognize nor acknowledge the kind of vulnerability which can be present. And it's such situations that, again, the smallest gesture can send one into a, a state of hostilities and negativities, and part of the fact we haven't understood how tired we are. When something goes wrong, so in, our, in the midst of our tiredness, or somebody just says the wrong word to us, again, the reaction coming and building mountains out of molehills. What has happened that we've got so out of touch 
with the feeling life as the day-to-day experience that we become so volatile, so unsure, so unreliable uh, in the relationship to the feelings and how in that relationship we can dump tremendous amounts on uh, other people, if not on ourselves. I say all of that, they're all kind of symptoms in a way, all kind of manifestations in life of getting out of touch and then at times either feeling life drying up and, and becoming cold in different uh, mechanical kind of creatures or getting out of touch and from time to time this explosiveness coming through and all the impact of it. So as I say, all of that hopefully and ought to be reminding, reminding us of how important the feeling life is and that it informs uh, thoughts, expressions and action in life. So in the, our situation here of the, uh, the inner life, one of the um, concepts which is used with tremendous frequency of course is being um, mindful but one could easily substitute and use the word being heartful as in fact having the same place and having the same kind of significance. And this sometimes ar arises, particularly um, in uh, the Dharma world of insight meditation, kind of view uh, which occurs which gives one the sense and the feeling that the mindfulness, uh, being mindful of the moment, is, pardon me, is the primary thing, is the most important thing. And the view, never to be underestimating the power of view in life, the, the view gets rather dominant. When that view of being mindful becomes very, very dominant, there is some danger. There is some risk. There is the possibility that we approach the situation with a kind of excess, in a way, of mindfulness, which brings a certain intensity to the meditation. And that intensity to the meditation or to the day becomes rather potent for us in its significance and we begin to get the, the idea, and it's not an unusual idea, that the mindfulness and the, in a way, rigidity of view around being mindful matters above all else. And part of the impact of all of that is it generates a certain kind of identification with mindfulness. The ego, as we've talked with other things, begins to build itself up upon or around mindfulness as a central theme, a central core to the teachings. And the intensity that goes with it can add additional seriousness, and one has seen, you have seen, and I have seen on uh, retreats, both uh, here and el elsewhere, sometimes 
some of uh, meditating uh, friends approaching the, uh, the sitting, walking uh, med meditation with a certain kind of um, intensity and it gives a kind of sometimes a slightly uncomfortable or strange feeling Those of you who've walked in on a three-month retreat will know precisely what I'm talking about. <laughs> of where there's a certain enclosedness which can uh, take place and a kind of message which is going out of keep out of my space, keep out of my way, don't let your, don't let your even your shadow run across <laughs> the front of me. And that kind of almost enclosed, wrapped around mindfulness, which the view is holding to, is a little bit, if not a, um, um, a great deal, somehow missing something about <laughs> contemplative life, spiritual life, and uh, heart-filled, heartfelt uh, life. And one sees that, not only in retreat places, but... Uh, in monasteries, of course, it's a familiar sight, and in uh, other cir circumstances of the contemplative environments. And though there are many valuable qualities which are there, the commitment, of, of course, and dedication, and um, uh, sincerity, and uh, significance of mindfulness there, but in, the, in its exaggerated form and in its exaggerated uh, uh, expression, as I said before, one becomes identified with the intensity of the experience. And this intensity of the experience does have a certain magnetic interest that when it goes, and it surely uh, does go, and it's no... Uh, I'm making these comments, I'm not making any comment on the, the long-term retreats or anything uh, like that, or three-month retreats, we have them, uh, or long retreats in England as well. But it's no coincidence that quite often what's called integration week uh, in the last days is rephrased by the meditators as disintegration week. <laughs> And what's disintegrating, what's disintegrating is the intensity which has built up and that magnetic pull of the intensity. The outcome for a number of um, people in the Dharma community of this is that then a person then enters into hopefully another retreat, another environment or situation, remembers or carries uh, uh, this view in the name of spiritual practice, and then begins to feel in, or uh, think and imagine that if I'm not acting in this way, if I'm not approaching these things very seriously and in a very concentrated, mindful form, and if I'm not experiencing the intensity of sensation, then I'm not really practicing. It's a kind of um, spiritual um, 
identification with the best intentions in the world with a particular quality of sensation, which I'm calling intensity or, or whatever, in and around the view of mindfulness. And the very thing which m spiritual life is pointed to actually gets neglected because the neglect of it is the neglect of the thing which does matter, which is the wisdom of the heart and an expansive heart which embraces all that life can offer. In the name of the spiritual life, in the name of mindfulness, in the name of insight meditation, or Dharma teachings, by making one error of perception, that error, in this case, holding to mindfulness tightly, instead of it being a vehicle for liberation, becomes the block to it. The block. And that is surely a spiritual tragedy in itself. So when speaking and referring to heart life and, uh, and uh, feeling life and the, uh, the beauty and the, the wonder of it, as I say, there are many uh, expressions and outer forms uh, of this. And that the interest in keeping in touch with uh, heart life and uh, in all the ways and details that can occur in situations uh, like this are the intimation of the wisdom of the heart. One abides, as the Buddha himself said on so many occasions, to realize the immeasurable heart. Sometimes, as I say, that gets manifested in its out outer form and expression. And I've referred here uh, on um, um, previous uh, uh, occasions to uh, the manifestations uh, of that um, in people's lives. And one of the things which has uh, given me um, an immense delight uh, this, uh, this year is one long-standing friend of uh, IMS who generally unexpected and unannounced pops in for a, a day or two uh, at IMS and that is the uh, venerable uh, Maha uh, Goshananda and sometimes there are people in our lives that we know and have been blessed enough to know very well over the years who kind of um, embody and uh, represent something for us in uh, lovely and rather um, tangible ways and various people in our lives um, um, do that and I know for a number of you we might take uh, the Dalai Lama and, uh, uh, and many other people on, the, on this earth and Maha Goshananda is the uh, patriarch of Kampuchea, uh, former, formerly Cambodia who he and I were in the same monastery for uh, three years uh, together. He, within the context of the monastery, leading extraordinary solitary life in uh, uh, one of the cells of the monastery and the other monks and nuns, and barely, barely saw him. And yet when he came out, always a sense of heartfulness with him in a very obvious and uh, tangible way. His 
care for people, even in the midst of his uh, solitude in the, in the cell in the monastery in the south of Thailand. And the, the outcome which has taken place over the year, he lost um, every uh, single relative that he had in the uh, Holocaust of the Buddhists in uh, Kampuchea in the mid-1970s. And last three years, he has been making a, a walk and the walk, the uh, Dharma pilgrimage, Dharma walk through uh, Cambodia, through Kampuchea, with quite some degree of risk, uh, which, is, which goes along with it, including at one time when the, when the walkers, nearly all people from Cambodia and a handful of others, that an hand grenade was thrown into the hall where everybody was sleeping in the night, uh, there and miraculously that hand grenade hit the floor and rolled and didn't cause incredible uh, loss and, of life and, and suffering. And Mahagoshananda is, uh, has this year has been and rightfully so been um, nominated for the uh, Nobel Prize and in many ways it gives me um, an immense uh, delight and happiness that uh, this rather remarkable and joyful, heartful uh, human being has received this nomination. And if I may say, as a very um, um, small uh, fish on the uh, international board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, he's now uh, one of three members of this uh, board that's been nominated for the prize. And they are you know, they're kind of big whales in the, in the Dharma world. And it's... Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I feel very honored to be uh, as a tiny little minion uh, um, in the waters of the Dharma to be in such a company. And as we talk, I think too of Aung San Suu Kyi, who the elected uh, leader of Burma, who tragically for the, for the past five years, owing to this uh, brutal um, Burmese uh, military uh, junta, dominating the country. She has been incarcerated. Again, another Nobel Prize uh, winner. She has been incarcerated in her home, cut off from access, from friends, and hardly seeing her family, and yet keeping her peace with the situation, not fleeing the country, and being a continual symbol of independence and the spirit of a, for working for democratic and social justice and not bowing down to fear and to her fleeing her house where she's under um, um, military confinement. And while, and while uh, she, she is there, much of her hours of her day-to-day -day life is engaged in what we are engaged in here, insight meditation, engaged in the practice of vipassana, looking at her life, looking at herself and... and keeping the, the, the vigilance of that. So I say, in, in the outer expression, whether it's through such people as um, Mahagoshananda, Aung uh, San Suu Kyi, and, and other um, people of this earth, it's all a kind of um, communication, a statement, a, a, rea a realization of the very um, profound significance of heartfulness in its everyday setting, 
in any kind of situation, political or social or economic or personal, that we keep listening deeply, deeply. And so the teachings here serve, in fact, that with the mindfulness, it is a heartfulness as well. With the awareness, it is a love. With the observation, there is a connectedness. With the wit witnessing, there, there is a relationship of we are all in, in this together. And that sense, that deep sense of things, does need to come through. And as I said earlier, it is possible that we kind of unknowingly and rather unwittingly get stuck in the name of spirituality, in the name of spiritual practice, with one or two single ideas, and we, and we forget and neglect the underlying and, and overall message that has been put out time in memorial of the place of the heart in relationship to Sometimes it is said, it is sometimes said in this uh, um, practice and uh, tradition, and people say and quite regularly on retreats and, uh, uh, to me, myself and uh, others, that one of the things which can be missed uh, here is the place and the element and the um, significance of, of devotion. And it's not an easy matter, and it's not an easy um, area to explore our relationship to devotion. And what I, what I mean by that is that, um, as someone was expressing appreciation uh, um, in the other day in one of the, the groups, is that the teachers who uh, have the small duty of a contributing to establishing uh, the Dharma and uh, the Western uh, setting here, have in fact made quite some considerable um, changes, uh, if not in a way to some degree radicalized uh, spiritual life and practices as those of us who spent our years in the monasteries or in the jungle or with the teachers uh, in the East where we were exposed to the same teachings that uh, you uh, receive here, the same kind of thrust and emphasis there, yet clearly um, in the East, with the two and a half thousand years, for the most part, of cultural religious settings that uh, go with it. The small reminders would be the Buddha uh, image here, it would be sometimes the relationship to uh, the teachers when one first received teachings um, in the, the monastery. The first thing that I uh, did with uh, Ajahn Damodaro, my Vipassana uh, uh, teacher, was to, uh, I was um, a novice at that time, so upon meeting him, first thing I do was to bow down um, three times and then from a monk who was uh, beside me. Uh, he handed, handed me um, candles, um, uh, flowers, uh, incense. These I uh, offered to the teacher. And then 
I was asked to chant in um, Pali uh, a uh, statement which was essentially making my uh, commitment to listening, to following the teachings, to uh, the teacher himself. And he reciprocated that uh, in the same uh, way, making his commitment to giving the teachings to me. And there was a particular kind of ritual which take place, which took place, which has been going on for 2,000 uh, years or, or more. And as a kind of formal introduction to intensive, serious uh, meditation practice in the same spirit and light as you and I have engaged in here. And I use it as one of countless and many illustrations in spiritual life which give some opportunity and some expression for um, uh, the devotion to flow, the devotion to be expressed. And after a while, of course, when one has um, done a, a lot of um, um, bowing to, to the teacher there, um, its significance is um, as great as a handshake. Um, has no greater or lesser place and many, many times one would just be bowing to the teacher and saying, well, today I'm feeling like this, you know, and da 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 <laughs> And uh, it's just the, 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 you know, the ritual going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, like that. He knew it was a ritual, I knew it was a ritual, everybody else knew it was a ritual, but it uh, was a slightly different form of saying, you know, how are you today? <laughs> so, but many express including the absence or the distinction of not referring to the, uh, the image or uh, the absence of the guru relationship, it's adult to adult uh, relationship in these circumstances, do say, yes, Christopher, you know, we're happy and uh, we're pleased that such, so much of the religiosity has been dispensed uh, with and one has no interest and appetite, uh, many people, for that. One doesn't believe that there is uh, a God who is uh, the creator and who loves us. And that world upon which so much uh, of religion in parts of the world has been made a great deal of, and the interest in that as the object of devotion, the belief has stopped and the devotion perhaps has stopped uh, with it, and the, the effect of that is that some do report, Christopher, what's the place of devotion in these kind of spiritual practices? It doesn't seem to be that kind of opportunity because if one has dispensed with religion, Buddhism or any other religion, it seems like for some it's a dispensing with the element of devotion as well. For some that's a significant part of the interest and uh, appreciation of these kind of practices that there is a distinct absence of all of that, distinct absence of religion and a very um, as much as possible tolerant and spacious uh, attitude there. But nevertheless, simply dropping off religion and all the cultural ramifications doesn't mean to say that there isn't the place for devotion. If we don't have God, 
if we don't have the guru, if we don't have the altars, if we don't have all the, the chanting and all those expressions, what's, what's the place? How is our devotion going to express and manifest itself? And if a person is feeling and experiencing some of the lack of that, it can be extraordinarily difficult. So devotion still has a deep and profound place. And I can say in such circumstances as this, that in a way, and say it without blinking an eye here, that it is the most devotion of all practices. It's an intensely, fully devotional practice because it's the devotion which demands our total attention, total heart, morning, noon and night. It's the devotion to life itself. It's the devotion to what's happening here and now. It's the devotion to the kindness and the welfare of each other and the support of each other. It's the devotion to looking into things it's the devotion to sacrifice and to letting go and to being with and to doing without. All of that requires a tremendous amount of devotion. It's a very devotional practice. And though the obvious forms of devotion may be dispensed with in its traditional um, religion, light in religion, it doesn't mean to say that you and I can dispense with the heart and with devotion. How is our devotion today? How, how much has that been expressing and manifesting during the, the rhythm and flow of the day? day? And it's not a, a blind devotion. It's a devotion to life. It's a devotion to the here and now. A devotion to what's revealing itself. It's a devotion to realizing an enlightened life. And that requires every drop of devotion to that that we can find in our being. And sometimes, in that, because it's, I sense, uh, a value, if I may say, and a specific um, uh, um, an immediacy uh, of that. I hear many times, in many cases, of where there has been devotion in, in the traditional light of, of, of God and once sees oneself as a devotee of, of uh, God, I tend to be re reminded of that um, remarkable uh, uh, young woman, Etty Hillism, and a comment, a remark uh, that uh, she made, which uh, when I heard, um, touched me very, very deeply. Etty Hillism left a number of letters and uh, diaries um, before the um, Nazis uh, uh, took her away during the, the, uh, the Second World War. And if I may say, just a slight little uh, um, background uh, to this, just the recently, in June in fact, I had uh, the privilege of uh, going to northern Israel and to an area 10 miles from the Lebanese border to give a, a retreat come a, a workshop for uh, Israeli friends and people living in the Klil uh, community in that part of the country. And I must say, in the course of my uh, visit during those uh, days there, hearing 
and some of you here will know, in fact, far more and far better than I, some extraordinarily intense and dramatic uh, situations there, not only of people, of people from the Jewish community who were brought up in uh, Israel and all the conflict and strife, fear and mistrust and war that's taken place, but of the stories of the people who have settled there, huge numbers of, of people owing to the, uh, the law of return, of that any Jew can return to uh, uh, Israel at any time. And that whole world of conflict and strife that has gone on, it seemed in my uh, reading and conversations, not obviously just in the last 40 uh, years or so, but in, in 2,000 years, two and a half, 3,000 years of a region which has been consistently troubled, consistent suffering. And I heard of just you know, one situation of um, one f uh, friend, one of the organizers of the retreat, who's one of many whose parents were on the boat to leave um, uh, Nazi uh, Germany at the beginning of the Second World War. They're on the boat with their teenage daughter, who is the mother of uh, this, uh, uh, this friend of mine. And the parents said, we just need to go back to the house to get some trinkets, some mementos. We can't leave them behind. They'd left everything behind. They were fleeing. They'd actually got on the boat to get away. So there are a few things we must go and get. And they went back and then Gestapo took them. The teenage daughter left alone on the boat and the parents gone to the concentration camp. And these stories, which, and many, many, many others, the stories too I hear from Israeli friends of the treatment of Lebanese people, the treatment of Palestinian um, um, people, three or four hundred um, um, Palestinians a day in the torture cells of Israeli prisons. I mean, the, the, the stories in, in and amidst this horrible suffering that takes place there, it's tremendous acts of kindness and love and, and work for reconciliation, breathtaking, just ordinary Israelis deliberately going into Palestinian villages to buy their food for the day as a statement of their love. Incredible. This interface amidst all of the hate and the violence and the historical confusion that's, that's taken place there. And Eti Helesium, to get to the point of tremendously heart woman, truly spiritual uh, woman, she said in, in uh, a letter to a friend of hers just before the Gestapo, the Nazis, uh, took her away. She, she said, we must love and we must love all. But she said, our love must be bigger than God's love. And she said, the reason that our love must be bigger than God's love because we have to be able to forgive God for what he has permitted. I mean, that is powerful spiritual realizations and insight. It's a powerful uh, statement 
from the depths of a fine young woman of what it means to live with the immeasurable heart. We must have a love which is bigger than God's love. We must be able to forgive God. Our love must be bigger than his for what he has permitted. And it's that spirit, in a way, of what heart existence means. And as I say before, and I say again, spiritual teachings point to that. We are here to realize that. We are here to be grounded in that. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with depth. May all beings live in an enlightened way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.